0: London, I love this city, I still remember first time I went there back in 1998 great place, nice people, a lot of beers, a lot of girls with mini skirts uh, yeah what can I say, <laughs> not much, I like this city basically, it's expensive but I like it <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the barefoot backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Christmas I guess. It's not a festival I celebrate particularly much. I think I may have coined the term a-festive after the pattern of asexual, aromantic and agender. I kind of see Christmas in the same manner as I do Diwali and Eid in the sense that I'm really glad that they exist and I love that other people celebrate them and I wish them all the respect and joy that they want from them. They're just not my onions you know. I was fully expecting then for my Christmas to be, you know, spent alone for the first time in several years. I'd got plans to spend the day just like any other random Sunday, as, you know, that's what the day feels like to me, a random Sunday, but with less stuff open. I thought I'd spend the day writing maybe this podcast, maybe my fantasy adventure novel, maybe a couple of blog posts. I'd be on Discord or Twitter but I'm fully aware that most of my friends are virtual and have families of their own, so while I don't celebrate this occasion, they do, and therefore I'd be kind of left to my own devices. Except that isn't what's happening. Unexpectedly, I have a visitor. Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Laura's back, albeit only temporarily. She was originally planning to come up for New Year, but she changed her outward ticket and is now arriving so late on Christmas Eve that it's after the last train back to the suburb I live in, because everything winds down for Christmas on that evening. I hope it's not going to rain. Anyway, this means I'll have been tidying up and cleaning for most of the hours before she arrives. Not that we're planning to do anything special, and she's accepting of the fact that I don't have a tree, but it'll still be nice to have her here. I hope she doesn't give me Covid. I've booked in for a booster jab next Wednesday, which was the earliest I could manage because of admin. Uh, This month I've realised that the N in NHS is... well, it's a lie, basically. The UK has a National Health Service, but it's devolved to regional government. This means that Scotland has a whole different system to England, and the two don't talk to each other very much. I had my two original jabs in England, but now I've moved to Scotland, I didn't exist on the Scottish systems, despite having registered with a Scottish doctor so I couldn't book the booster. And it would have been impractical to go to England just to go to a walk-in centre in Carlisle or somewhere. I did eventually resolve the issue yesterday with a phone call. I'd have resolved it sooner than yesterday, but as I say, it involves my having to make a phone call. And I don't do that sort of thing. What else do I need to say? It's been quite a quiet month. So quiet, in fact, that I've even caught up on listening to all the backlog of my podcast episodes that have built up. You'd have thought that would have meant being up to date with my own. You'd have thought wrong. In my defence, London is bigger than I planned it to be, if that makes sense, which is why, rather than being one episode, it's now become three. This episode looks at those boroughs north-west of the Thames, using an arbitrary line down the middle and finishing this episode at harringay for no reason other than I couldn't think of a good segue from there into Islington. In addition, I've noticed this part of London seems to be known by very few people on my friends list, hence the lack of contributions. And by the way, it's been suggested that a future pod episode I should do is a kind of Q&A, all about me, my travels, my orientations, etc. So if you've got a question that you've always wanted to ask me, or you know something you're not sure about that I've ever talked about, then drop me a line and I'll do my best to include it in that pod episode. Anyway, let's start this pod in the far west of London. The first borough entirely north of the river on the west side, is Hounslow. I once walked there from central London on my way to the airport because I was bored. Got as far as Austerley tube station before getting the underground the rest of the way. You may be unsurprised to know that the A4 Great West Road isn't the healthiest of roads to walk along. This was back in 1995 and was in the lead up to one of those very few incidents that I still haven't spoken to my therapist about. Good times. Apart from that I've never actually been to Hounslow Borough I keep putting it on my list to visit, but it's always just that bit far whenever I visit London, so I've not managed it yet. So anything I say in the next couple of minutes is based on research and not first-hand experience. One might argue that's the case for much of this podcast episode. Since most of my last episode, and to be honest quite a bit of this one, seems to focus on parks, country houses and museums, you may be pleased to know that for consistency Hounslow has a selection of each of these. The obligatory house and gardens, well there are two, one is Sion House in Brentford. Built in the mid-1500s and refurbished, and parts rebuilt many times ever since, it's a bit of a mix of styles. Once a royal palace, and where Catherine Howard was imprisoned before her execution, it ended up in the hands of the Duchy of Northumberland. And still is. Though you can go round and marvel at the opulence and wonder about the electricity bill. And no doubt there this is balanced by any royalties from being used in many a film that requires a country house. Emma, the madness of King George, that sort of thing, because heaven forbid that highly paid English actors be required to go film in Derbyshire. Sion Park is the large expanse that surrounds it and holds the sites of both the abbey that stood here before the palace was built and, further back in time, evidence of a Roman era village. It's also believed to be where Pocahontas lived when she was, shall we say, relocated to England. The other is in Chiswick, which in my head is a suburb more famous for its beer, but that's probably just me. Chiswick House was built in the early 1700s and looks a bit like it wouldn't be out of place in Italy or Greece. It's mostly white, symmetrical, with a dome, columns out front, grand portico and balustraded staircases. And that's just the outside. Inside it's no less European in its fixtures and fittings. Indeed, the designer and owner, the 3rd Earl of Burlington, seems to have actively taken his inspiration from places he visited on his grand tour bit like how backpackers buy souvenirs from their travels to fill their homes, except that they're generally not as affluent as an earl. The gardens of the house were designed by architect, landscape designer and generally unregarded portrait painter William Kent. To give you some idea of his ideas as an influence, he's generally regarded as being the founding father of the entire English landscape garden style, so beloved of Middle England. At the time this was seen as a rebellious affront to the standard French style of country house gardens which tended to be more formal and structured. In contrast the English landscape garden was seen as replicating the countryside making the gardens feel more natural and casual. Although obviously a very specific view of nature. Lakes, bridges, fake ruins and representations of ancient temples were in. Actual wild countryside was not. It's amazing how often this sort of thing happens, he lied. Anyway... It looks kind of pretty, if fake countryside is your thing. If it isn't, Hounslow has a couple of quirky and quite odd museums. For example, in Brentford again, there is the London Museum of Water and Steam. This started out life as a waterworks and pumping station in the 1830s, but rather than being built to pump water out of a tunnel like at Southwark, this was built to pump water out of the river to channel into filter beds and then reservoirs to supply drinking water to the growing population of London. I'll talk more about filter beds and their operation in my next episode. Today, however, the site is a museum talking about the history of London's water supply, complete with, apparently, the world's largest collection of stationary steam pumping engines. I don't know how much competition there is for that accolade, to be honest. The thing about museums like this is that they provide information about important subjects that people don't really know about, yet which have an impact on their everyday life. It's not even really stuff you learn at school. And this would be more interesting than learning the names of Henry VIII's wives, two of which survived and outlived him. Don't believe the rhyme. And just down the road from there is the Music Museum. It does exactly what it says on the sign. It is a museum about the history of music. It started in the early 1960s with six pianos, and has kind of grown since then, now housing all manner of instruments from across the ages. There's also a display, interactive, natch of self-playing instruments which, because I hang around with people who played D&D, makes me again wonder about whether a suitably skilled artificer and sorcerer could tour the D&D realms as a rock band playing such self-playing instruments. I mean obviously it would either be late 70s electro prog rock or mid 90s dance. The museum also keeps a collection of ways in which music has been recorded both in exhibit form and in archives where there are over 20,000 rolls of music in a dedicated library. There's also a workshop to keep the knowledge of instruments ongoing and, of course, a concert hall, so you can hear everything in a proper setting. One final thing to say about Hounslow. I may have mentioned in my last episode that London's first airport was in Croydon. Subsequent researchers brought up this is not entirely true. On what is now Hounslow Heath, an expanse of land between Hounslow and Feltham, was, very briefly, the Hounslow Heath Aerodrome. Set up as an airbase at the start of World War I, It was converted to a civilian airport in 1919, although it only operated for a further 11 months until March 1920, which was when Croydon Airport took over all operations. Although flights weren't particularly exciting by modern standards, they were mostly domestic to places like Leeds and Cardiff, with international departures to Paris and Amsterdam. Although not the first international flight, the routing from here to Paris was the world's first international scheduled passenger fly route. Hounslow Heath is notable for being the departure point for the first ever flight to Australia. The Australian government offered a price of 10000 Australian pounds for the first person, specifically the first Australian that was in the rules, but no one had ever done this before anyway, to fly from the UK back to Australia. Six crews took up the challenge, but only two succeeded. One of those took 206 days. The winners, the McPherson-Smith brothers, took a month in total, with a total flying time of 135 hours. By the way, the prize money in today's value would be around eight hundred ten thousand Aussie dollars or four hundred forty thousand British pounds. Hounslow Heath is also important in the history of geography. It was here that the first precise triangulations were done to calculate the exact values of latitude and longitude in the seventeen eighties in conjunction with the Greenwich and Paris observatories. This also paved the way to the creation of the Ordnance Survey and the mapping of Great Britain to specific and accurate detail. And why there are trig points at the top of many hills, and other places that really don't deserve them, like on a dyke in Cambridgeshire, six metres high. According to slightly dubious statistics, in their own admission, by the London Data Store website, which was a creation of the Greater London Authority, so they'd know these things better than most, in 2007, which is the last year they have data for, the Borough of Hillingdon, was the fourth most popular London borough for tourists to overnight in, for both domestic and international tourists, behind Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea, and Camden. If you take a cursory glance at a map, you might wonder why this is. Hillingdon is a roughly rectangular-shaped area, tall but not so wide, on the very western edge of London. While it's the second largest, it is the least densely populated of all the boroughs. It's in zones 5 and 6 of the London Transport Network, and the towns it contains aren't generally noteworthy. A closer look at the map explains both its density and its popularity. We have what is known in the trade as a statistical outlier. In this case, that outlier being the world's third largest airport by passenger traffic. London Heathrow Airport, while not the only airport inside London's boundaries, is, obviously, by far the largest. It was originally a farm and then a small airfield mainly used for model aircraft and testing new planes, but it replaced Croydon Airport as London's main access to the world soon after the end of World War II. Obviously then, lots of people pass through Hillingdon, but I imagine they're almost all literally using it as a stopover to head off somewhere more touristy. So, is there anything in Hillingdon itself that might persuade them to stay longer, rather than just a flying visit? Oh lord, please shoot me now if that's going to be the level of my punnage. Oddly, one of the biggest attractions, although one I was unaware of until I did some specific research into Hillingdon, is the Battle of Britain bunker just outside Uxbridge, on the site of what was RAF Uxbridge Air Base. Although Biggin hill over in Bromley, and about as far away from Uxbridge as you can get in London, was one of the main operational airfields in the Battle of Britain, RAF Uxbridge was the Operations and Command Centre for Fighter Command, known internally as the Number 11 Group. It had been the overall HQ of Fighter Command, but this was moved to a specific admin building at RAF Bentley Priory in Harrow in 1936. Specifically, a top-secret bunker, 60 feet, 18 metres, underneath the airbase, self-sufficient as much as possible, and built to withstand pretty much anything that could be thrown at it. It was from here that the Battle of Britain was plotted and won, and it later served as the operational nerve centre for the air units involved in the D-Day landings, so it was, you know, a pretty fundamental and important part of the UK's war effort. These days, its only secrecy is not being well known enough to find, because it's in Hillingdon, I guess, and no one ever thinks to look there. It's a bit like finding a lost key down the back of the sofa. But it's now a museum that tells the story of the UK's air defence system in the first half of the 20th century, and of course the Battle of Britain in particular, and the role the Bunker had in it. It's all very interactive, with authentic models and displays, recordings of people that worked there and took part in the Battle of Britain, and even hands-on experiences where you can see and feel what it was like to be there at the time. The whole thing is also available in virtual format in case you're unable to physically go underground, which is something I wish was more standard across museums and attractions. Just as at Biggin Hill there are replica planes, On the entrance to the bunker are fibreglass replicas of a Spitfire and a Hurricane, the latter painted in the colours of the Polish Air Force. Not far from the bunker is RAF Northolt, the first RAF base in the UK built in 1915 and predating the RAF itself by three years. It's still a fully functional airbase, so you won't be allowed in. But it too has a fibreglass replica Spitfire, though it's slightly inside beyond the main gate, so it's a little tricky to see from the road. What is accessible at the corner of the RAF base by a major roundabout is a large war memorial dedicated to the Polish Air Force. The reason for the Polish theme in the area is because during World War II the exiled Polish Air Force had made RAF Northolt their home base and they were instrumental in the war effort. For something more peaceful and down-to-earth, Hillingdon also offers a lot of nature. While the borough in general is quite rural in feel, the Chiltern Hills area of outstanding national beauty is only a few kilometres to the northwest. on its western edge is the Colne Valley Regional Park. Indeed, it pretty much delineates the border between London and the home counties, stretching as it does from Staines in the south to Rickmansworth in the north, a distance of just under 27 kilometres or 17 miles, and covering an area of 110 square kilometres. According to its website, it contains 19 nature reserves, 5 country parks, and 200 kilometres of waterways. A significant chunk of these waterways are lakes and reservoirs, many formed from previous heavy industry, gravel extraction. Think of it as a sort of open cast mining site, now flooded. In addition, the Grand Union Canal, the original main line from London to Birmingham, passes right through the centre of it, providing a great way to casually saunter up or down the valley. Obviously, it's a great place to birdwatch, go for walks in the woodlands, and if you're into water sports, not those sorts of water sports for full swap radio, it's a good place to go kayaking, canoeing or even angling, although wild swimming is forbidden. There's also history here. At the south end, near Heathrow Airport, and, keeping up with the World War II theme, a memorial to Sir Barnes Wallace, because the bouncing bomb was developed around here. There's an old barn, a Harmonsworth barn, that dates from the 1420s. I mean, it's just a barn and it was in use to store cereal crops until the 1970s so it had a longer productive life but it's only ever been restored and repaired rather than rebuilt so it looks pretty much the same now as it did when it went up. This makes it one of the best and most complete examples of medieval agricultural design in the country. Oak and elm timber framed. It's also pretty big. It's 58 metres long, 11 metres wide and around 12 metres high at its highest point. At just under 5,000 metres cubed, it's one of the 15 largest barns ever constructed in the country, and the largest one still surviving. If they think that's impressive. The, it's also believed that George Gilbert Scott, a Victorian-era architect who specialised in churches, which, you know, at the time was a good line of work, he built or altered 800 of them after all, used Harmonsworth Barn as an inspiration for his original plans for Christchurch Cathedral in Christchurch, New Zealand before the bishop nixed the idea and told him to build it in stone instead, before dropping him completely from the project anyway. As a final comment on Hillingdon, are any UK football fans listening? When they say it's being checked by VAR in Stockley Park, have you ever wondered where Stockley Park is? Well, it's a business park just north of Heathrow. You have Hillingdon to thank for war when your team wins by a dodgy offside decision. Heading northwest from Hillingdon, we reach Harrow. Famous mostly in the UK for having the other public school that isn't Eton. Interestingly, as an aside, the school I went to in Merseyside, a very middle class independent school, has a sibling school in Moor Park, just outside London to the northwest of Harrowborough. It's obviously that sort of area. Currently, Harrow's most famous resident is Laura Lundell who in 20 years time will be one of the leading voices in world immigration policy and be the author of several books. Though granted, she's unlikely to still be resident in Harrow by the time she gets her own Wikipedia page. According to government statistics, Harrow is one of the most diverse boroughs in the country. It's also one of those rare authorities where there is a white minority, although still possibly the largest grouping. A shade under 40% of the people in the borough are of Indian or Sri Lankan origin, And it's therefore not a surprise to note that according to figures from 2018, an estimated 25% of people practice Hinduism, compared with a national average of less than a 15th of that. Indeed, data from the 2011 census reveals 40 different religions are represented in Harrow Borough, and just under 90% of residents stating they had a religion, which is the third highest authority in London. One of those religions represented is Zoroastrianism. This is one of the oldest faiths still with adherents, which is all the more impressive given a core tenet of their belief structure is that you have to be born into it, you can't convert to Zoroastrianism. How old the religion actually is is open to a great deal of scholarly debate, but the supposed founder, Zoroaster, is believed to have lived somewhere between 2,500 and 4,000 years ago. Even the origin is disputed, with most suggesting a region around eastern Iran Afghanistan and the southern ex-Soviet states of Central Asia. His tomb is allegedly in Balkh in Afghanistan, and was on my hit list to go and see until I broke a bone in my foot in Uzbekistan and could barely walk. As another aside, Zoroaster is also known as Zarathustra, a name made famous by being used by Nietzsche in his book, or also Schplatt Zarathustra, which later became a piece of music by Richard Strauss that's used every time TV wants a soundtrack to a scene in space and they don't want to use the Blue Danube. Anyway, at Rainer's Lane there is the Zoroastrian Centre, an art deco building that looks a bit like one of those upright, enclosed fans, heaters or aircon units often found on the floors of office buildings. It has all the hallmarks of an old cinema. Because it was. These days it's home to the interestingly named Zoroastrian Trust Funds of Europe, which does sound more like a finance company than a religious organisation. But they look after the interests, social, cultural and religious Of Zoroastrians in the UK and across Europe. They bought the building in 2000 and after much liaising with both Harrow Council and English Heritage refurbished and opened it in June 2005. It's a grade two star listed building. Looking on the Historic England website it still does look like an old style cinema inside with brass framed stairwells, two levels of tiered seating in an arc and a stage with curtains. I've no idea if you can go inside. Their own website's not currently working. One of the towns in Harrowborough is Stanmore, the end of the Jubilee line and memorable to me only from a rather odd mid-80s song by the comedian Alexis Sale, that had the line Is Brava moved to Stanmore? Staying with the religious theme though, Stanmore is notable for the unassuming Stanmore and Canons Park Synagogue, who refer themselves as having the largest Orthodox Jewish congregation in Western Europe, with over 1,500 families registered. As an aside, They also believe they're the only synagogue in the world to offer slushies to the kids after the services. I mean, what do Catholics get? A dry wafer, if they're lucky. Cannons Park is also home to the local football club, Barnet FC. You'd have thought they'd have played in Barnet Borough, but TLDR, the council wouldn't let them. So they moved across the border, into a ground originally sited for Wheelstone FC. Wheelstone is a part of Harrow Borough, just north of Harrow, but the team don't play there anymore. No, they now play in Ryslip, in Borough. What's in a name, eh? I mentioned in my last episode about the UK's first road traffic accident and the rivalry between Harrow and Croydon. While it seems Croydon had the first driver death and Crystal Palace had the first pedestrian death, Harrow lay claim to the first multiple fatality in a road accident. In February 1899, two people died when the car they were in crashed. They were travelling down Grove Hill between Harrow School and what is now the centre of Harrow when the rear wheel collapsed and both occupants were thrown out onto the road. One died at the scene, the other a couple of days later. There's a plaque that marks the event at the top of Grove Hill at its junction with Peterborough Road. There's a lot of hills in Harrow. Even part of the town is called Harrow on the Hill. And the highest point in London north of the river, the third highest in London of the whole, is Stanmore Hill in Harrow at 152 metres. Harrow's obligatory World War II connection comes in the form of Bentley Priory Museum, formerly an RAF administration centre, as mentioned earlier, the HQ of the Fighter Command Unit during the Battle of Britain. It was here that the plans to both defend the UK and later to attack Germany were formulated. These plans were then passed on to places like RAF Uxbridge Faction. Like the museum in Uxbridge, this concentrates on the Battle of Britain, but looks more at the stories of the people involved, from Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, through the aircrew, and to the people whose job it was to process and act on radar information and intelligence. RAF Bentley Priory itself had previously been a Georgian manor house on the grounds of a long-gone Augustinian priory. Much of the rest of the manor house is now luxury housing, but the old grounds, 55 hectares, are a nature reserve including woodlands, grasslands, wetlands and a lake. Another old house, though this one is Victorian, is Grimm's Dyke, This was latterly the home of W.S. Gilbert, he of Gilbert and Sullivan operatic fame. Indeed, it's where he died of a heart attack whilst giving a swimming lesson to two teenagers in one of the lakes on the grounds. The design of the house harks back to the Elizabethan era with a frontage of leaded windows and mock wood panelling. Its name comes from a nearby ancient earthwork and ditch that may be the remnant of a defence fortification built by the native Britons against the Roman invasion. Since the early 1960s, the house has been often used as a film set And has been seen in things from The Saint to Little Britain. You can still visit the house in a sense, it's now a best western plus hotel. You can even get married there, much cheaper than none such mansion. Speaking of film sets, the borough just to the south of Harrow is Ealing. Ealing is of course famous for Ealing Studios, one of the most famous British movie studio companies. Films have been made here from the early 30s, and indeed Wikipedia tells me that it's the oldest continuously working studio facility for film production in the world, but many argue its heyday was in the early 1950s. During this period they were very well known for Ealing Comedies, a series of whimsical but often quite dark comedy movies that were very definitely British in outlook, sometimes pitting a small community against bureaucracy and big government, and at other times being almost farce-like when characters' plans start to unravel through circumstance. Examples of the former include Passport to Pimlico and Whiskey Galore, the full tale of which I mention on podcast episode 22 about the Outer Hebrides, while examples of the latter include the Lavender Hill mob and the Lady Killers. Ealing Studios still exist. For a long time they were owned by the BBC, but they're back to producing films independently now, including Shaun of the Dead and the more recent St Trinian's films. Obviously, this means it's not somewhere you can just turn up to and have a look around, but it's an interesting thing to have on your doorstep, I think. You can use it as an office space, though, rather oddly, and it shares a site with a film and media college, so it'd be a great place to learn the trade. Otherwise, you just stand outside and take pictures and think about the history. I suppose theoretically, what you'd actually do is stand outside and take, you know, Instagram reels. More creativity can be found a stone's throw from Ealing Broadway tube station. Now a nightclub called the Red Room and set behind an estate agent's, a blue plaque marks its previous existence when it was called the Ealing Club or the Ealing Jazz Club. It's notable as being in general THE venue for jazz and blues music in the early 60s, much as the Cavern Club in Liverpool served that early beat music at roughly the same time. And while the Cavern Club saw the early days of the Beatles, it was at the Ealing Club where their contemporary rivals, the Rolling Stones, not just played their first gig, but in fact a couple of years earlier met up for the very first time. Many other 60s band and singers had their early ventures here too, including people like Eric Clapton. According to recent reviews on Google Maps, the current incarnation isn't a particularly welcoming or safe venue, and while that may well be partly sour grapes, your marriage may vary in either direction, I'm not a clubber. Like, really. I wasn't a clubber even when I was younger. Obviously. For somewhere in Ealing that is easily visitable and accessible, let's head to the south of the borough, to the suburb of Southall. The railway station here shares something with that in Wall's End, near Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast that's pretty unusual for England, although obligatory in Wales and Scotland. Signage is bilingual. While Wall's End has, for touristic reasons, translations in Latin, Southall is much more practical. Its signs are in English and Punjabi. Because, well, according to ward level statistics, approximately three quarters of the population of Southall as a whole are ethnically Asian, specifically North Indian. It's interesting to compare and contrast with parts of Brent and Harrow, actually. So we heard earlier that Harrow has a large Hindu population, as does Brent, actually. Ealing's Indians are predominantly Sikh, and while proportionately more Sikhs live in Hounslow, Hillingdon, and the mysterious Redbridge, Sikhism is the largest religion in Southall specifically, with approximately a third of all Southall residents being Sikh. It may come as no surprise, therefore, to learn that Southall is home to the largest Sikh temple organisation outside of India. This is the Gurdwara Sri Guru Singh Sabha, the current home of which was inaugurated in 2003. The main hall of the Gurdwara, can hold around 3,000 people for seated worship, with over 1,000 more able to be accommodated in the balconies or the overflow rooms. In addition, they've calculated around 15,000 people enter either this building or the nearby older hall every week, so this includes visitors as well as worshippers. The rooms are huge, with high ceilings and laying with colourful rugs. One of the aspects of Indian culture is the provision of free food for travellers, and it became one of the fundaments of the Sikh religion from the very start. The langa or kitchen in the Gurdwara here keeps up with that tradition, offering vegetarian Natch dishes to all who wander in. They estimate they dole out around twenty thousand meals a week, such as the footfall and community spirit of the local area, heading further east spiritually as well as geographically in the southeast of the borough lies something more unexpected, a foreign government's embassy. Most embassies are, as you'd expect, somewhere in central London, in large, grandiose Georgian or modern-purpose-built buildings. However, the Embassy of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea does not look how you imagine it would. I don't know if you're expecting some kind of traditional Korean-designed building lined with symbolic ornamentation and lined with images of Kim Il-sung. If so, you'd be wrong. It's a seven-bedroom, semi-detached house on the A406 North Circular Road. The houses close by are mostly divided into rental flats and cost around 1500 a month for a one or two bed or 3400 for a whole of a five bed house a few doors down but the North Koreans bought theirs for 1.3 million around 20 years ago they obviously thought ahead going back between Southall and Ealing town is Hanwell one of the nicer spots here is the walk along the Grand Union Canal from Hillingdon obviously Just outside Hanwell itself, the canal rises, or falls, does very much depend on which direction you're going in. It's higher on the west, on the Hillingdon side, around 16 metres, doing through a series of between six and eight locks, depending on how wide you define the series as. They were built in 1794 under the overseeing of William Jessop, who was famous for building a lot of canals in that period, and have been designated a scheduled ancient monument, the word ancient here doing a lot of heavy lifting. At the top end was a windmill made famous in a painting by William Turner and a bridge where a canal, a railway and a road all cross at the same time. Obviously on different levels. I always wondered if one existed and it's still the only one I know of, although there's a couple of points in the Birmingham area that come very close. To the south of the canal is an open expanse called the Warren Farm Nature Reserve A rewilded 61 acre urban meadow where one can spot all manner of birds and rare animals like skylocks, slow worms and the interestingly named Yarrow Pug, which I had to look up I'll admit. It's apparently a species of moth. This is also where the Grand Union Canal meets the river Brent, which is convenient as Brent is the next borough directly to the northeast. So let's SUP up the river, or not like anyone would let me do that, and head across the border. Brent continues the diversity present across this part of London. The Migration Observatory website states that the Borough of Brent has the highest number, over 170,000, as well as the population share, 55%, of non-UK-born residents out of all London boroughs, and 5.7% of all London foreign-born residents live in Brent. This includes the largest Brazilian community in the country, as well as having the largest proportion of any authority in England of people with Irish origin, who make up 4% of Brent's population. The Irish community is particularly noticeable in the south-east of the borough, around the suburb of Kilburn. The ONS stats from the 2011 census suggest that 11% of all London's Hindus live in Brent, 15% of Brent's population, while those practising Islam account for nearly a quarter of all Brent residents. Kneesden is believed to have been home to the first music radio station in the UK catering specifically to a black audience, Dread Broadcasting Corporation, which played reggae, African music and soul in the early 80s. Obviously it was a pirate radio station and only lasted four years. Back in those days it was very hard to get a legal radio licence. Pirate radio as a whole would be a good subject for a podcast, although perhaps not this one. It's therefore not surprising perhaps that the Brent's major religious site, If You Ignore Wembley Stadium, is the BAPS Sri Swaminaran Mandir Hindu Temple between Neasden and Harlesden, though it's commonly known as the Neasden Temple. It's believed to be the first purpose-built Hindu temple in the UK, and was built in 1995 next to the previous temple, which now serves as a cafe and a shop selling traditional Indian sweets. In terms of size, it's pretty impressive. The main building, the Mandir, is 60 by 22 metres in area, and stretches up to 21 metres tall. There's over 500 different designs within it, and it's made up of over 26,000 individual stone pieces. That's one hell of a jigsaw. Obviously, it's built to a traditional Hindu design, so it contains a lot of ornamentation, representations of historical figures from Hindu mythology, especially those carved into the just under 200 white internal columns. White is a very thematic colour, and much of the building is made from carved limestone, and marble. The open plan prayer room can hold around 3,000 people. It's not just a temple though. Inside is a small museum that looks at the history of Hinduism and takes a quick overview at explaining what Hinduism is and what Hindus believe and stand for, catering specifically for the tourists who are coming to take a look rather than the worshippers who already know the deal. There's a charge to visit the museum but it's only a couple of quid and you'd be a heathen not to to be honest. It's also possible to observe and even take part in a couple of Hindu ceremonies, although I didn't get this chance on my visit, as they're very time-specific. One is the Arti Ceremony, an offering where candles are waved in front of images while prayers are sung. The other is Abhishek, where water is poured onto an image of a deity while sacred verses are chanted. On site is another building, the Haveli, which is mainly used as a community centre. Unlike the Mandir, which is made from stone, the Haveli is made from wood, specifically Burmese teak and English oak. It's not plain wood either. Each strut, each balustrade is carved uniquely with representations of animals, flowers and patterns, shapes, all in exquisite detail. It's really interesting to compare and contrast the two buildings. The whole complex is set in a huge area of gardens from where it's possible to see the temple as a great vista and the gardens aren't just a lawn area either they are a weird mix of the english country garden as seen elsewhere around london in the country houses and hindu patterns and symbolism where lotuses meet roses and fountains meet walkways shaped like celestial bodies it's a far cry from a building on the very very edge of brent near to the tripoint with the city of westminster and the borough of camden at kilburn high road railway station on cambridge avenue is what used to be a tin tabernacle an example of a church made out of corrugated iron they were commonly built as towns and cities expanded rapidly during industrialisation, since they were easy to transport and quick to put up. Not many survive now, and anyway, due to their prefabricated nature, they were more or less designed to be temporary. One of the most famous in the UK is the one on Lamb Home in Orkney that was built by Italian prisoners of war that I mentioned in my podcast about Orkney, that was episode 44. This church in Kilburn is still standing though, It looks a little like it's made of that rippled cardboard that you often get with big boxes. It still looks like a church though, with a sloping roof leading to a small tower at the centre front. It seems to be currently being used as the headquarters of a local sea cadet troop. As an aside, the building next door to it is also interesting. It was built in the early 1930s and served as an animal hospital stroke clinic type of place called the Animals War Memorial Dispensary RSPCA, the words still being present in huge letters on the front. Between the words war and memorial is a large bronze plaque which serves as a memorial to animals killed in the First World War. Brent's contribution to World War II lies in the form of the Post Office Research Centre and the Paddock War Rooms. I'd love to be able to tell you that these sites formed a really interesting museum. But they don't. They were sold off for housing in the late 90s after being pretty much abandoned for 20 years. So although the buildings still exist, they're now private. Still, you could take some pictures and revel in the history. It's quite an interesting history, though. It was here where the first transatlantic telephone radio call was made. Well, the eastern end, anyway. This was a call in January 1927 between Sir Evelyn Murray, the Secretary of the General Post Office in the UK, and Walter S. Gifford, the President of the Bell Telecommunications Company in New York. I mean, even that call wasn't direct, it was routed via the huge radio transmitter station at Rugby. Heaven knows what the lag would have been like, or the cost per minute had it been a private call. It was also where the first programmable electronic computer was built, during World War II, this was the Colossus that was shipped to Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire to be used to code break German communications. And that's a subject for a whole separate part. Colossus later gave birth, not literally, merely conceptually, to Ernie, the electronic random number indicator equipment. God, who thought of that back That's worse than the firm I used to work for having computer systems called Fire and Ice. This, anyway, is a literal random number generator and is used, albeit much improved these days, for the premium bonds. These blur the line between investment and gambling, in the sense that they're government bonds that hold their value, so you don't lose anything, but they kind of earn interest based on earning picking your numbers, as it were, that are associated with each bond. I thought they'd largely gone out of fashion, having been much beloved by people from my grandmother's era, yet research suggests almost a third of the UK public still holds some. I wonder how many of these are grandparental gifts to grandchildren that have been forgotten about. Underneath what used to be the Post Office Research Centre site, and also owned by the housing association that bought the buildings, are the remains of Paddock. This was an alternative underground bunker to be used by the government in World War Two, presumably in cases other sites proved dangerous or inaccessible. In the event, it was only ever used a handful of times, but I guess it was a good provision that it was there. It's in quite a state of dereliction now with rusted equipment in situ and quite a lot of damp. It'll probably never be renovated to be honest. You used to be able to go down there on rare special organised tours but I don't imagine you can now. From underground to, now I've said that already, let's say the great outdoors and we head north to Brent Reservoir. This is also commonly known as Welsh Harp Reservoir after an old and well-known pub that was demolished in the early 1970s. It's a site of special scientific interest, primarily because the lake is a known breeding ground for a large diversity of, sometimes quite rare for the UK, water birds such as the white rumped sandpiper, which is apparently normally found in North America. The reservoir is 45 hectares in size, though in the 19th century it was as much as three and a half times larger than this, and the whole SSSI covers an area of just under 70. It's a really lovely place to walk around and get closer to nature. On the north side you have Welsh Harp Open Space, while on the south you have Kneesden Rec. It's also a popular place for water sports, again, not those kinds, including canoeing, kayaking and lots of other things I have no experience or desire for. One other sporting thing to say about the site is that it's believed to have been the site of the world's first ever formally organised bicycle race in June 1868. Well, since we're here, we might as well sail across the border into Barnet. In writing this podcast episode, I learnt that the Brent Cross Shopping Centre wasn't in Brent, but it was in Barnet. This reinforces my belief in the arbitrary nature of borders and also names. I'll concede it's not very far from the border with Brent. It's very close to the Welsh Reservoir, but then Bratislava's not very far from Vienna, so, you know. I'm mentioning Brent Cross Shopping Centre not because i think it's a place you ought to go it's a shopping centre no more no less but because it's regarded as the very first american style out of town dedicated shopping mall in the country obviously these days it's seen in less regard as places like merry hill in the west midlands meadowhall at sheffield the metro centre in gateshead which used to have a roller coaster inside it and closer to london near places like bluewater and lakeside both on the eastern side of the metro but back in 1976, such a concept was seen as revolutionary. Your mileage may vary on whether this was a good thing with hindsight, especially since I don't drive, but while places like this have been argued to have killed off local town centres, maybe it's controversial to say this, but in some cases the town centre wasn't terribly appealing anyway and may have needed a bit of reappraisal. Dudley, I'm looking directly at you here. And also, arguably, the shops and clientele are different anyway. There's no room in central Sheffield for an Ikea and I wouldn't have gone to Meadow Hall for a beer or a kilo of beef mince. Retro moment. I've been to Brent Cross once, about, what, 20 years ago? And I remember having one of the best chocolate and peanut butter milkshakes I've ever had. It was served in a pewter pint mug that had been pre-chilled, so the combo of the texture and the temperature just well, worked somehow. And I've been trying to recreate the effect ever since, though without the frozen pewter mug, because I don't have one. Maybe that's where I've been going wrong all this time. Anyway, with just under 400,000 people, Barnet is the most populous London borough. In fact, it's the 13th largest borough in England, though it's a long way behind League Leaders Birmingham with 1.14 million, and it's the second largest that isn't either a city or an ex-county council, now unitary authority, for example Cornwall. The largest non-city borough is Kirkley's, which probably no one outside Yorkshire has ever heard of. I'm not aware of Barnet ever applying for city status, unlike, say... Croydon, although it may well have had more success if it had. When it comes to religion, about 16% of the population is Jewish, the highest proportion of Jews in any UK authority, and Barnet contains 35% of all London's Jews. This is fairly much centred on Golders Green and Hendon in the south of the Borough. It comes as no surprise to learn then that one of the most notable sites in the area is a Jewish cemetery. This is on Hoop Lane and it opened in 1896 it's quite an unusual cemetery in the sense that it's pretty much split in two halves down the middle. On one side is the area where those who follow reformed Judaism lie, I guess, while on the other side are the graves of the Sephardi community, many of whom were originally from Spain and Portugal. Both sides are run by their respective communities and they come together to discuss issues four times a year. In effect, they are two different cemeteries. Their joint website gives the original size of the cemeteries the very old-fashioned measurement of 15 acres and 38 poles. As of course you are all no doubt aware, there are obviously a 160 square poles to an acre and 40 to a rood. A square pole is also known as a square rod or a square perch. Though the word square is often dropped even though it's an area measurement. Which is awkward as perch, pole, rod is also a linear measurement. There are three feet to a yard and five and a half yards to a perch. Or pole. Or rod. Or lug, apparently. Seriously, what the feck is wrong with this country? Anyway, this makes the cemetery about 6.2 hectares, or six rugby pitches. You can visit it and have a wander around if you're not Jewish, but be aware it's closed on the Sabbath, which makes sense, also closed at Christmas, which less so, and on many Jewish festivals. You're not allowed food, drink or glass, and you have to wash your hands, for spiritual, not sanitary reasons. Other than that, it's a cemetery, it's full of graves, it's very peaceful. Directly opposite, different but similar, and entirely secular, is Golders Green Crematorium. This was one of the earliest crematoria in the country, opening in 1902, so slightly later than its neighbours, and is now by far the biggest, with around 2,000 taking place a year. It's the last resting place for the remains of many notable people, including 70s musician Mark Bolan, great train robber Ronnie Biggs, and writer Bram Stoker. The walls of the building are lined with memorial tablets of the people cremated here, and there's places to sit down and rest and take in the calming atmosphere. The grounds cover an area of five hectares and feature lawned areas and a couple of ponds. Another green space, but one promoting life rather than commemorating death, is even further south on the border with Camden. This is Golders Hill Park, the northern side of Hampstead Heath. It's a landscaped park and it's got a flower garden, a water garden, a small zoo and a butterfly house. You can, if you so wish, spend money adopting one of the animals in the zoo for a year. However, In the northwest of the borough is somewhere a little more animal-focused. Belmont Farm near Mill Hill Broadway is one of those urban animal farms, not a metaphor, where urbanites have the opportunity to see farm animals and get the sense of what farm life is like in a safe and controlled environment, without having to trek out into the wilderness and experience a complete culture clash. They claim to have 30 different animal varieties, mainly the usual like cows and goats, but they also have a fallow deer, called Bambi, obviously. I've never seen that movie. Probably never will. Related, the farm also aims to show children where their food comes from. One imagines any conversation that starts, and this is a lamb, probably won't end well. You can ride on a tractor though, or could if it went for Covid restrictions, so that's something. As you might expect by now, Barnet has a museum that mentions World War II. This is in the form of the RAF Museum at Collindale, which is related to the large one at RAF Cosford in Staffordshire. The London base looks at the entire history of the Royal Air Force, what it does today, and tries to imagine what its future would be like. It's a very hands-on museum. You can, for instance, sit in the cockpit of a supermarine Spitfire, although only if you're small enough. As someone who is 1m90 tall, I can only imagine I would not have been one of the pilots in the Battle of Britain. Well, That, and my severely bad eyesight, dyspraxia, fear of heights, and inability to swim. Alternatively, there's a flight simulator that recreates the flight controls of something a bit more modern, a Eurofighter. I was always particularly poor at flight simulators. Well, any kind of simulator, really. I had one on my old computer that simulated a steam train that I was particularly pants at. I think it just involves holding too much information in my head at any one time, especially related to timings, which is not an ADHD trait. Oh, I would have forgotten I needed to close the flaps 23 seconds ago. I hope that doesn't... ah. There are also a lot of displays, from World War I era planes to much more modern aircraft, and there's all manner of interactive exhibits to show you how they all worked. Further back in history, Barnet Museum has an exhibition on, amongst other things, the Battle of Barnet in 1471. I seem to recall doing a podcast on the Wars of the Roses, episode 30. The battle was one of the most decisive in the entire conflict, pretty much ending that phase and leading to relative peace for the next 12 years or so. It was the battle where Edward IV of the Orchists defeated the Lancastrian forces under the Earl of Warwick, the so-called Kingmaker, and, following a battle at Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire that merely confirmed his supremacy, caused his rival to the throne, the future King Henry VII, to flee to France. The site of the battle isn't known for certain, however one of the most commonly assumed is a point on the very northern edge of the borough at Hadley Green. On the spot where the Earl of Warwick was believed to have been killed there is a large obelisk to commemorate his death and the battle in general. It's not a terribly interesting obelisk. It's about five and a half meters tall and quite ugly stone. It was erected in 1740 so some 400 years after the battle and it's already been moved once so I mean it's in the right town at least. Lives made much easier, says the blue plaque. And sometimes it's the smallest of concepts that make the biggest difference. The 27th of June 1967 is a day that will live long in history. Australian listeners may note that this is the birthday of 1990s rugby union player Phil Kearns, but he wasn't born in Enfield, so that's not the reason. Rather, it marks the first public use of the modern ATM, the automated teller machine, or cash point as we know them in the UK. This first transaction took place outside the branch of Barclays in Enfield, North London, and the site was apparently chosen, according to Barclays themselves, due to a combination of location and logistics, it being near London, having a decent amount of pavement in front, and there being enough space behind the wall to hide a safe. They also suggested, in conversation with the Londonish website, that Enfield specifically was chosen because it had a, quote, model cross-section community, unquote. In other words, it was average suburbia. Though not as average as the most normal place in Britain, which we found out on my last pod was Sutton, on the opposite side of London. The idea for the ATM was said to have come from the principle of the chocolate vending machine, and allegedly came to its creator, John Shepherd Barron, who worked in a printer's, while he was in the bath. A literal classic eureka moment, though my mind would have stayed on chocolate, to be honest. It operated by using a paper voucher dusted with carbon-14, a mildly radioactive substance mainly known in the archaeological carbon dating process, and the maximum withdrawal was £10, or just over £150 in today's money. The first pundit was TV sitcom actor Reg Varney, who I'm guessing most of my listeners won't really know. Just be aware at the time, while not the biggest name around, he'd certainly have been a well-known face, I'm guess a current equivalent would be someone like Hugh Dennis or Greg Davis. The ATM in question is no longer there. Although the building is still a Barclays, the cash point has been moved around a corner, apparently, to ensure pedestrian flow remains smooth on the roadside pavement. I did visit the bank, went to the cash point, withdrew £10, of course, which I probably then spent on beer. One wonders if the model cross-section community Barclays believed Enfield contained also include ghosts. Well, maybe not, but... Imagine an ordinary British semi-detached townhouse in the identikit suburban streets of Eastern Enfield. The sign on the house says Jesus House. It seems the current occupants have their own way of handling issues from unwanted visitors, especially those who have been dead for a number of years. See, this house was briefly famous for being the scene of a notable paranormal event in the late 1970s, the so-called Enfield Pottergeist. A woman with four children was living there when all of a sudden strange things started to happen. Beds shaking. Weird knocking, etc. But this soon developed into things being thrown around the room, including, at one point, one of the daughters, as captured on a camera set up by a paranormal investigator. In addition, this same child started speaking in a gruff, old male voice, called Bill. The story captivated the nation for a while, but soon the hauntings stopped, and nothing further notable happened. The general feeling since has been attention-seeking children, but who knows? The story was later made into a 2015 TV miniseries and was used as the inspiration for the 2016 film The Conjuring 2. Interestingly, that's not the first suggestion of the supernatural in Enfield either. As far back as 1621, Elizabeth Sawyer from Winchmore Hill in what is now the southern part of the borough was hanged for witchcraft in one of the more famous witch trials of the time, well, famous enough to have had a play written about it that still survives. It's of course not as famous as the Pendle Witch Trials from a couple of years earlier, but it shows how popular, so to speak, witchcraft was alleged to be across the country. Spoiler, it really wasn't. Just people going, I don't like you. I'm going to tell the authorities you're a witch. She's allegedly supposed to have killed a neighbour who assaulted one of Elizabeth's pigs. The pig was allegedly eating the neighbour's soap. I have no idea if pigs eat soap, but I do know if I do a search for that, I'll get lost in a rabbit warren of animals eating strange things, and this part will never get written. In the same era, in nearby Palmer's Green, there were tales of creepy rituals in the woodlands and sightings of demonic creatures, black dogs. The sightings of one is allegedly supposed to have caused the death of a cart driver called Gibby Haynes at a bridge over the Pyms Brook, which ever since was known as Deadman's Bridge. Enfield seems to be quite a place for otherworldly experiences. From otherworld to fantasy world, and nearby Edmonton has a stone sculpture of a bell outside Four Street Library. This was created by Angela Godfrey and commemorates a comic poem from the 1780s written by William Cowper. Quite against type, he was most noted for religious poems and hymns. The poem was called The Diverting History of John Gilpin, Showing How He Went Further Than He Intended and Came Safe Home Again, because in those days telling the whole tale in the title seemed to be the thing to do. The ballad itself is a retelling of an older story about John Gilpin, a draper from London who was travelling north to Edmonton with his family for some kind of celebration, when he ended up on a runaway horse and is taken by it, alone and quite unwillingly, several miles out of his way. But obviously he came back safe and sound, as the title says. As an aside, the poem was republished almost a hundred years later in the USA, illustrated by children's artist Ralph Caldercott, And one of the illustrations in the tale was used as one side of the Caldecott Medal, awarded annually to the illustrator of Most Distinguished American Picture Book for Children. So there's a little bit of Enfield in American children's literature culture. Enfield's obligatory country house is Forty Hill Estate, near the most northerly point of Greater London. Compared to the country houses in some of the other boroughs, it's nothing special. Built to the specifications of a rich merchant in the early 1600s, possibly Sir Nicholas Raynton, haberdasher and one-time Lord Mayor of London, by an unknown artisan, and is very... straight edge. It looks like the sort of building you'd find on a model railway set. Red brick, rectangular white window frames with repeated identical smaller rectangular panes of glass, 12 in a 3 by 4 pattern inside them, and a slate roof. It's now a museum, dedicated to life in the 1600s, and to Rainton himself in particular. Another aside is there's a pretty row of Georgian terraced housing called the Crescent, yes, similar to the one in Bath, to be found on Hartford Road, just north of Edmonton Green. I wouldn't say it was worth the trouble, but if you're passing, take a photo. The eastern edge of the borough is defined by the River Lee and a series of reservoirs that stretch quite away south, but I'll talk about them when I come to Hackney and Waltham Forest in my next episode. But for now, let's stay on the west side as we head south, back towards central London, and into Haringey. Haringey was the first London borough I visited on my own. Back in 1993, just after my 18th birthday, I wandered down to London to visit a pen pal. Her name was Jenny Smith, and I feel comfortable mentioning her name in full because it's not like it'd be easy to find someone online whose name was Jenny Smith. Anyway, she lived somewhere near Hornsey Station, and I remember going to both Wood Green shopping centre and to one of those small travelling furs that are commonplace in small parklands during the English summers. Strangely, we did not go to Alexandra Palace, despite it being just over there, although granted I was only down there for three days. I had to shoot back up to Liverpool to meet with another pen pal, the dust from which has yet to settle properly, and not something else I really need to speak to my therapist about. As it happens, though for completely unrelated reasons, I've pretty much never set foot in the borough since, apart from a brief wander along the River Lee near Tottenham Hale Station. This is a place that's forever in my mind, because again, it was mentioned in a song, Saturday night beneath the plastic palm trees, dancing to the rhythms of the guns of Navarone, found my maker near Tottenham Hale Station, undiscovered heaven in the Seven Sisters Road. A quick glance on the map reveals there are nearer stations to Seven Sisters Road than Tottenham Hale, but then the Leighton buzzards came from four miles on the other side of the Lee, from Leighton, including the name folks, in the borough of Waltham Forest. I may be waffling. There's a reason for this. Harringay is one of those boroughs that, like Wandsworth in the south, where information was a bit thin on the ground and the general consensus on Twitter was that it wasn't a place to linger long. However, Shah, a travel and beauty blogger who lives there, Disagrees.
1: I am here to talk about Haringey, North London, which is an area where I've lived my entire life. I'm going to give you a few things of what you can do in Haringey, North London. So, Haringey is situated, I'd say, on the cusp of Zone 2, Zone 3, and it's what can I say? melting pot of culture and i know that's a very cliche word but there's so much to see and do here we've got green lanes where you know again if you want a kebab at 4am it's the place to be there's so many restaurants open and they're just as good as the next i really like one called salale salale um which is great for a special occasion and again nothing beats seeing um, sort of an older lady making bread fresh from scratch in the morning as you stroll past what else can I tell you about Harringay? I think we've got some of the best views in London move over Primrose Hill um, you'd probably want to take a trip up to Ali Pali which again Alexander Palace station is not near Alexander Palace you'd need to jump on the W3 or my hack is to get off at Wood Green station and get the W3 up get off you know and just go for a walk and then just taking the views why not make a day of it you can go ice skating there's even I think there's a lake there I mean this is kind of I haven't been in years but there's a lake there as well so you can get on a pedalo and then, yeah, just taking the views. In the summer, there's a food market festival at Ali Pali, And it's such a good place for, to go for a gig. It's an iconic building. And then there's also places in Harringay that I would call the bougier, The n- I'm not going to say the word nice because I feel like that's incorrect. I feel like every area has beauty. But maybe more of the posh parts. Um, Crouch and Muswell Hill lovely there's so many independent restaurants places to go for brunch just for a nice sunday stroll you've got the king's head pub um there's beam for brunch which is one of my faves i'd say get there early otherwise there's a queue outside and after that why not just take a walk there's so many green spaces in harringay that you're never too short for you know getting a bit of greenery in the city especially as this place is so polluted furthermore why not head down to tottenham (laughs) which i know some people you know have views on whether it's from the football team or just the area but there's you know there's so much to see and it's in the process of changing i think gentrification is slowly coming to tottenham but at the end of the day it's still got the people which make the area Um, there's an iconic chicken shop called Chick King on White Hart Lane which I actually feel I don't know maybe I'm a bit of a traitor but I've never been but I've heard it's amazing so I guess North London Haringey is a unique place full of culture lots to do and I would even say it's got some of the best transport links we've got you know the London Overground we've got national rail we've got the tube whereas you know some of our counterparts in south london just have trams
0: so there you go harringay is better connected than lewisham and croydon my research into harringay also brought up another food reference Tottenham cake this is a type of sponge cake covered in very sweet and apparently always pink icing first officially made at the very end of the victorian era by local quakers The pinkness is what gives it a distinctive appearance, and originally was made with local mulberries that grew in the grounds of the Quaker meeting house. I confess I've never eaten it. Don't even think I've ever eaten a mulberry. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what a mulberry looked like. In fact, it it wasn't until I did this pod that I knew the mulberry was red. But it sounds intriguing. There's a couple of small museums in the borough. One is at Bruce Castle, a manor house from the early 1500s, which now serves as a community meeting place and centre for local history. The other, in the far east of the borough, is an industrial site called Markfield Beam Engine Museum. It's a rare surviving example of a working Victorian steam-powered beam engine, previously used here at what used to be Tottenham Sewage Works. Other than that, Harringay is one of the many boroughs that borders on the Lee Valley, but as I said earlier, that's an area to be discussed in more detail next time. Well that's about all for this pod. Join me next time when I complete my discussion about the boroughs of London by heading northeast, including street art, music history and the one borough that I never remember exists. Until then, save me a roast potato and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively on my website barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot or you can email me at info at barefoot The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.